Good morning. One of the first things I tell myself when they give me the opportunity to stand and preach is to control your emotions, Chris. Try not to be too anxious. Try not to be too fearful. Try not to get choked up in emotion. And then we sing a song like that. <laughs> Just before <laughs> stand up to get up here. So I need a, need a minute with that. Uh, how wonderful it is to hear the saints come together and, and sing uh, the truth. That this song uh, which comes across like a, a prayer and praise. Um, and to hear young children and the, the, the more mature of us singing things like this together, uh, it's, it's wonderful. Good morning. <laughs> I'm glad to see all of you here today. Um, I've only had a handful of opportunities to preach, so uh, forgive me um, where I'm not so polished. And this is only the second time I've preached a sermon that I've preached before. Now, it was at another church months ago, um, but Pastor Todd fell ill. Uh, just got word about that on Friday. And I thought to myself, you know, the sermon that I, that I this sermon that came to mind, uh, I think it, it fits. I wanted to talk about golf for a second. Um, it was when I started attempting to play golf years ago, which I don't even mess with now, I learned of a word called mulligan. And it's where, for those who don't know, you make a less than fantastic shot off the tee. And you say, well, I'm going to take a mulligan. It's not going to affect my score. I get a duo. I get the chance to do it again. And what I learned quickly was that chance to do it again often resulted in a even worse shot than previous. So I learned that's not the way for me to go. Just take the bad shot and run with it. And that's the first thought that came to mind when I thought about preaching my sermon for the second time. You know, hey, is this a mulligan? Am I taking the opportunity to do worse the second time than I did the first? Uh, but I know that's not true. I know that's a fleshly thing. It's almost a sinful thing. I know that the word God does not return void. Amen? Amen. So, that said, the topic that we'll cover is very similar to that entire thought process, to the fact that I get the opportunity to do this a second time. Um, so, about a year or so ago, our Sunday school began a series of studies through the pastoral epistles. We covered First and Second Timothy, we covered Titus, um, and we know that these epistles came to Timothy and Titus from the Apostle Paul. You can see on the pages throughout these books the pastoral heart, the genuine concern and care that Paul has for these two men who have been called in their youth to be leaders, teachers, and above all preachers of the Word of God. They have been called to set in order their congregations, to appoint elders, to develop leadership from within the church, to exhort, to strongly encourage brothers and sisters in the faith with truth, with sound doctrine of which these men have been entrusted, to rebuke false teachers, to train up current and future generations to be godly, 
all while themselves being men full of respect, integrity, dignity, and sound moral character, that the word of God may not be reviled, being known as a model for good works. So today, our focus text will be in the letter of Paul to Titus, chapter 3. The first two words, while you're turning, um, the first two words of chapter 3 are, remind them. And when I studied the passage, I came to understand that those two words are the recurring theme of this chapter. You see, everything here in these verses that we are going to work through today have already been laid out throughout the entirety of the letter. We're not going to encounter anything new. What I do hope that we see is how important it is that we be reminded of the importance of the truth of God. These are the types of things we must preach to ourselves. These are the types of things we must pray about and pray for, not just for ourselves, but for our families, our friends, and our congregation. Christ gave his church the Lord's Day, one in seven, that we could be reminded of the glorious truth of his gospel. We need to be reminded of our faults and failures, our sins, and we also need to be reminded his grace, his mercy, the call to repentance and faith, and the gift of salvation. We need to understand that the things we will review in these verses are not just for the good of us as individual Christians, but for all people. The title for today's message is Remind Them. Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The same is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask simply now that you bless our time together, that you bless the preaching of your word, that we gain some type of understanding of what you have here for us today. And Lord, um, I ask that you, you hide this preacher behind the cross and that our hearts and minds will be affected. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So working through from verse 1, 
Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, there are many in our day, as I'm sure there's always been, that do not get warm and fuzzy feelings about the thought of being submissive to rulers and authorities. We know from Scripture that the hearts of men are wicked. There are warnings for those who abuse power, but here we have a warning and a command that we are to be peaceable with those who govern over us. From the New Testament, we have seen how rulers and authorities treated Christ and his apostles, how they later treated Paul and those who traveled with him. We see that these rulers and authorities were abusive to those who would share the good news. But here in this first part of the verse, Paul is not saying to Titus, we have reason to be disobedient. Rather, Paul is reminding Titus of a truth. Romans 13.1 reads, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1-3 read, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, Godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now, just a moment ago, I referred to the statement as a command in Scripture. I don't think anyone would doubt that statement. A plain reading of the text states, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. To expand on the statement and its intended meaning, I'll refer to our Baptist Catechism. Let us consider what we understand about the teaching of the moral law of God and how the catechism questions and answers help make this statement easier to understand. Questions 68, 69, and 70. Question 68, what is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord God giveth thee. Question 69, the fifth, what is required in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment requireth the preserving, the honor, and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, <coughs> inferiors, or equals. And question 70, what is forbidden in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment forbiddeth the neglect of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongeth to everyone in their several places and relations. So when Paul urges Titus to remind them to be submissive, he's making an appeal to the moral law of God. As he is doing throughout all his teachings, being faithful to what Christ taught and being faithful to who God is. In the commentaries I read, just being submissive isn't enough. The apostle also writes to be obedient. We are here speaking of an inward obedience, a willing heart. Matthew Henry's commentary states, Magistry is God's ordinance for the good of all, and therefore must be regarded and submitted to by all, not for wrath and by force only, but willingly and for conscience sake. Again, we should consider the moral law, the fifth commandment that we just reviewed, honor thy father and thy mother, 
Is your child being obedient when you tell them to wash the dishes or take out the trash? And the whole time they're doing that, they're mumbling, they're murmuring, they're angry with you. They're making a poor and half-hearted attempt at doing that duty. Is that being willingly obedient? To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient is to do so willingly. The verse continues, to be ready for every good work. For contrast, here's a quick review of how false teachers are described in Titus chapter 1. In verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. In verse 15 it reads, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. In verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Titus 3, to be ready for every good work. Paul is telling Titus to remind them that they are called to have the opposite characteristics of empty talkers and deceivers. They, and also we, are called to be ready for every good work. Why? For what reason should the people of God be ready for every good work? I want us to look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us all, excuse me, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Christians, be ready for every good work because you are not to be like the unbeliever, the insubordinate, detestable, unfit, because you are a people whom Christ has redeemed for his own possession. That means you now belong to him so that you may be a people who are zealous for good works. You must have the desire to be willingly obedient and you must be willing to cultivate a desire to be zealous for good works. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one. In terms of slander or gossip, we are to speak evil of no one. I want to read from the book of Proverbs in chapter 6, starting in verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually summoning discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. 
a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. We are talking about insults and abuse. It's like Paul is writing to us here again, remind them. We just spoke about the moral law concerning rulers and authorities. Here we can see the implications of the summary of the second table, love your neighbor as yourself. Speaking evil and gossip about others only sows discord and reveals the status of your own heart. Now look and see these next few verses in Proverbs, how God has provided an answer for this. Again, Proverbs 6, verses 20 through 23. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Speak evil of no one. Continuing in verse 2. Excuse me, continuing in Titus 3, verse 2. Avoid quarreling. The NASB reads to be peaceable. And the KJV reads to be no brawlers. First Timothy 3 tells us, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome when speaking of the qualifications of elders and deacons. Likewise, Second Timothy tells us, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. And that's where our scripture goes here in Titus next. It says to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. To show perfect courtesy. The NASB reads, showing every consideration. The KJV, showing all meekness unto all men. These words, every consideration, all meekness. These are variations of perfect. A wholeness, a complete act. William Hendrickson writes in his New Testament commentary on Titus, showing some mildness towards some people might not be so difficult. Nor showing all, that is, complete, thoroughgoing mildness to some people, or some mildness to all people. But to show all mildness to all people, even to those, Titus 1 reads, Cretan liars, evil brutes, and lazy guns, was an assignment impossible of fulfillment apart from God's special grace. For any of us to show this type of consideration, this type of caring, we must admit to ourselves that God's special grace is necessary. This is a call to prayer. We must pray for God's special grace if we are to put aside the selfish desires of our own heart that would have us turn away from being kind to others. Not just those who deserve it. Not just those whom we are comfortable, comfortable around. 
but to all whom we are in contact with in our lives. Our God commands this of his people. Verse 3. Now verse 3 isn't written like this, but in my head it starts out reminding again who we all once were. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. We must view the unbeliever as ourselves, as who we once were, apart from the special grace of God. For we, the verse reads, who is we? Ourselves. This is Paul writing to Titus. For the believers in Crete, we, you and me without God, are the foolish. Who are the foolish according to Scripture? Psalm 14 1 reads, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. And Proverbs 1 7 reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And here Paul reminds us that we too were once foolish. The verse reads, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. For disobedient, I run to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We read a description here that says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, the words of Christ in John chapter 8 read, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Malice meaning wickedness, meaning depravity. Proverbs 111-14 reads, If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one person. Ambush the innocent without reason. Malice and envy. Resent of others. Covetousness. Proverbs 14.30 reads, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Outside of the grace of God, these are the characteristics of who you and I once were. Hated by others and hating one another. The verse continues. Even if we struggle to find examples of this hate within ourselves, within past or, or present, we can turn to the news and see endless examples of hate in the godless world. Apart from God, this is who men will be and what men will do. We've already been mentioning 
looking to the moral law of God. With all these examples of our breaking of the commandments, were we loving our neighbor? We loved our sin and we were haters of God. Why should we show what the KJV calls all meekness unto all men, what the ESV calls perfect courtesy, and the NSV calls every consideration? Again, backtracking to 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now we read that earlier, but the verse continues, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. In Jude, the scripture reads, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I know I'm reading a lot of scripture, but uh, even if you were in Sunday school today, being here this morning, these layers of truth, foundational truth, repeating and giving us this hope, this assurance. It's God's word. Uh, and the title, the first words of this section of scripture is remind them. I want to read the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians starting in chapter 6 verse 9 through 11 because it, in my mind it mirrors what we're going through right here in Titus chapter 3. So in 1 Corinthians 6 starting in verse 9 it reads or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11 reads, and such were some of you. And then there's good news. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. And again, that, that mirrors where we are here in Titus chapter 3, um, going back to the beginning of verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But then the good news. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I'm getting way ahead of myself because we're still only on verse four. Goodness and loving kindness. How are we described? Wicked, envy, hate. How is God described as having goodness and loving kindness? Remember, it is goodness and loving kindness that Paul reminds Titus must be shown to rulers and authorities. It's goodness and loving kindness that are necessary for the good works that we are called to do. It's goodness 
and loving kindness we must show towards all people, for we were once lost, for we were once haters of God. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Verse 5 reads, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Well, this washing, it's a spiritual washing. He has washed away our unrighteousness. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And of regeneration, a spiritual regeneration, a new birth. The Holy Spirit makes you a new man. Gives you a new heart. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Remember verse 5 said, he saved us. Verse 4 lists God the Father as our Savior. Verse 5 tells us of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 6 we read, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here we see a purposeful declaration of the triune nature of God in salvation. Verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that being justified, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We might become Heirs. I've read this before from the pulpit, but when I see the word heirs, we automatically think of the doctrine of adoption. And I love the way our confession states uh, this, this one paragraph as an explanation of what it means to become heirs, to be adopted into the fold of God. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness are able, enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8, the same is trustworthy. These verses we've just covered, verses 4 through 7, are a gospel summary. And the gospel is indeed trustworthy. And Paul is here telling us, in Titus here in verse 8, I want you to insist upon these things. There are at least two things going on here that I want us to take note of. First, what Paul says to Titus, note 
the powerful wording, I want you to insist. It is obvious here that Paul is making an appeal to the authority that comes from Christ. This gospel summary in verses 4 through 7 is laying out for us whose goodness, whose loving kindness, who saved us, right? It's His mercy, that of God the Father. It's the Holy Spirit's washing of regeneration and renewal applied effectually to us. It's Christ who was able to give these things to us so that we may be brought into the hope of eternal life. And second, what is being insisted upon on these things. In short, it's obedience. It's discipline. All these things we've been reviewing in this chapter, it is our reasonable service to live the way that God, who has saved us, commands us to live. And why? Still in verse 8. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. To insist upon these things, to insist upon the truths of the gospel being shared, being taught, being proclaimed, Paul warns Titus that those who have believed must be careful. That is to give heed, to take, to take thought about these things, that they may be reminded to carry themselves and to conduct themselves in the manner which God sees fit. These things are not suggestions. They are to devote themselves to good works. We are to devote, to devote ourselves to good works. The verse continues, these things are excellent and profitable for people. We read from the ending verses of chapter 2 earlier to answer why we must be ready for every good work. But now I want us to visit those verses again where we can see the same truth being written plainly here in chapter 3, an appeal to holy living, a summary of the gospel, a command based upon an appeal to the authority that comes from Christ. So again, in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's how chapter 2 ends. This appeal to this authority. And then when it leads into the next section, chapter 3, we begin and see how Paul addresses Titus about these things, about these truths. He starts in with reminding. I know we're backtracking a lot, but that's kind of the point of the whole sermon, this remind them concept. This repetition of one day in seven for us to come and worship our God and Savior. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God 
and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Paul wrote this letter to Titus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Holy living accords with understanding who God is and that he has given you a gift. He has set you apart as his people and you are not to live as those who remain lost in their sins and trespasses. You are to be a people who remain zealous for good works, to be devoted to good works, who patiently endure evil that the word of God may not be reviled so that an opponent may have nothing evil to say about us, so that an opponent may receive grace by God our Savior, perhaps granting them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Chapter 3 has touched on the whole of the letter in terms of warnings, commands, in terms of Christian witness, in terms of who our Savior expects his people to be. Christian, you and I are without excuse. Scripture plainly proclaims who his people are to be, obedient, willingly submissive for our good and for the good of others. And for those without Christ, I have a final reading from the book of Acts. Chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus still saves. He is our redeemer. He turns sinners into saints, not by their works, but by his own. The Father has poured out his wrath onto the Son for all who would believe, so that they might receive pardon instead of judgment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask you to forgive us for not taking your warnings seriously. We want your promises. We want our, our ticket punched to heaven. But are we willing to see that you have put us here to be willingly obedient, to serve, 
to care for others. You use the ordinary in this world for the growth of your kingdom. Let us see the miraculousness, the miraculousness of that. We don't need, we don't need great miracles of lottery winnings, of outfall pouring on us, of, of benefits, of material things in this world. We need to see that through creation, through the foolishness of preaching, through something as simple as black and white text on paper, you still turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. We ask that we remember these things as we move forward in our week. In Christ's name we pray.